standard issue for all women. Hey there, you bunch of smashers. Thanks very much for tuning in to Sunday Chops. Happy Sunday, or, or Monday, or Wednesday, or, you know, whenever you're listening to this. I'm not going to list the days of the week, you already know them. You're not idiots, hence why you're listening to Standard Issue. It really does make a massive difference to us if you can share your love of the podcast with a pal, or with six pals, or with 20 pals, and also if you can subscribe to iTunes or Acast, and also if you can rate and review us. We really like the number five when it comes to stars, that is our absolute favourite. Anyway, to the matter in hand, which is this week's Tasty Chops, and it is an absolute feast. We chatted to Alison Vale, who's a historian, and she has written a book called A Woman Lived Here, and it is the alternative blue plaques that remember London's remarkable women. It was utterly fascinating. So without me wanging on any further, let's get into it. Hi, we're here in the studio having a nice cup of tea with author Alison Vale to talk about her new book, A Woman Lived Here. Hello, Hello, Alison. Hello. Thanks for joining us. There are currently, according to your book, fun fact I learned today, 903 Londoners that have a blue plaque. Anybody want to guess? Alison, you're not allowed to take part in this because you know the answer. How many of those people are women? Well, there's 900. 903. Three. 50. Oh, it's actually... Well, you're going to be pleased (laughs) with this. The correct answer, as Alison will tell us, is 111. Oh, 13%. My God, that's, out, that's outrageous. What are all these women doing out of the kitchen yeah. to get a blue plaque? Disgusting. Now, what are the causes for that disparity there? That's a really big question, isn't it? And I think part of the problem is the is the business of recording history. You know, Churchill famously said, didn't he, that he knows he's going to be, the, the history will be kind to him because he's going to write the history books. I've paraphrased. A lot of the process of recording history was done by men. It was blokes writing it about the the, the event the the history that blokes had made it was all down to a very male-centered process history not her story exactly and i think that's been a major major impact it does mean english heritage undertook some survey a few years back which kind of prompted this whole thing where they put their hands up and said look we know this is this is really not on and they asked people whether they thought that history had been made as as impactfully by women as it had by men Um, and the results were really miserable that people overwhelmingly thought that men had been enabled to make history and the thing is men had been written about the end of this book had kind of got to the point where I thought you know what the business of balancing out the power between women is not so much one big 1918 you know here you will have the vote yay big revolution it's been a long ongoing quiet revolution that's kind of gone on for, for centuries really lots of small tiny triumphs that have just built up and small and tiny doesn't make history no there's there's that game you can play where you have 60 seconds and you say name as many men from history as you can and 60 seconds name as many women from history as you can and even like i would i would know i would be able to name but many more men what you will get with name as many women as you can is you will largely end up with the name of queens in history and that's an interesting point you make here in your introduction as well is that the English heritage scheme for blue plaques the house has to exist yeah it means that working class women um those houses often you know destroyed in the blitz or in slum clearances Mm. are left out absolutely it's you know English heritage are there primarily to protect 
the buildings of, of, of past generations and preserve them for the future. So obviously this scheme is partly driven by the buildings themselves and that does disadvantage working class men and women actually. There's a whole imbalance there in amongst that and so I've tried in the book to kind of break the rules a little bit because there are they're more difficult to find quite often the stories of remarkable women of, of the working classes but they they did exist and they did make enormous difference and enormous impact so I've tried to do that even though chances are they'll never get a blue plaque because the houses are no longer existing so I have a question to start off with which is how how does someone kind of qualify to get a blue plaque you have to be nominated by the public can I have one you could be nominated and okay. then English Heritage Panel would then decide. But I have to be dead, right? You have to have been dead at least 20 years. Well dead, OK. Yeah. Your house has to be... You, your address has to be, you know, still somewhere where from a public highway people could go and see the house. And it has to still look pretty much as it would have done to its famous or significant occupant. Really? Yeah. So that's why if you're looking at somebody of particularly noteworthy somebody from the 18th century that house has to be pretty much still looking like it would have done to them so it's the remit of this you know there's there are all sorts of reasons why women aren't represented and 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 why in terms of class representation there's an imbalance too but you only had to have lived there you didn't have to have owned it no and you had to have lived there either for a significant period of your life or something significant about you had to have happened while you were at that house. All right, so say um, 13 Franks Road, the childhood home of one Jennifer Offord, uh, in, you know, hopefully many, many years from now. If some prick puts, like, a roof Uh, extension on it, does that mean, nah, soz, not happening? uh, No, if you put that... If somebody's put some lovely kind of pebble dashing and extended the, I don't know, the attic and put the side extension, then possibly... This is a plea... In your book, you've done something to kind of address the balance, as in this is a lot of stories about a lot of women who were in London, not always from London and not always ended up in London, but lived in London for a significant period of their life. Yeah. How many women are we talking about here? 56. How did you find them and narrow it down? I I did put out a lot of pleas to a lot of people that I knew were sort of um, from different fields, contacts, friends and family from different fields to say, you know, who are your heroes, who are your heroines in in your particular work. But a lot of it is just an awful lot of um, subscriptions to newspapers and archives and just searching and searching and searching. But I am a little bit of a magpie like this. So some of the women in the book, I'd sat on those stories, some of those for, for a long time, in the process of reaching, researching other projects, come across some of these stories and thought, I really want to do a book. And in fact, I'd pitched over the course of about eight years I suppose I'd pitched to different publishers several sort of different incarnations of this book um, and was told repeatedly by I have to say not by Little Brown who's publishing this one by other leading publishers have been told books on women's history never sell who wants to read about women? Who oh, exactly? Well, the women, That's, you pricks. Was absolutely that was their answer. Yeah. So some of them I'd sat on. Some of them I thought, oh God, somebody's got to tell that story. There's a couple of women in here that I I picked out. I mean, there's a couple of women in here. I'm surprised they don't already have a blue plaque. Yeah. Joan Littlewood, for example. Yeah. Uh, the theatre. Oh. Um, yeah. yeah. Impresario, who I was impressed to see once decided yeah. to walk from London to Liverpool and made it as far as. Burton upon Trent, was yeah. it? Yeah, which is still pretty yeah. far up the country. Yeah, before someone kindly bought her a 
bus ticket or a train ticket to Manchester. She decided that was good enough. (laughs) She was actually on her way to the States. Really? Yeah, she was going to Liverpool to get on a a boat to the States. Probably she didn't try and swim it. (laughs) Joan Clark. Joan Clark. Now, I found her very interesting. Joan Clark uh, was involved in the Enigma Enigma at Bletchley uh, uh, Park. Yeah. And what I found... Mick and I were talking about this when I read it. Um, what I found really interesting about it is uh, my mother, her very first job was that she worked at the Foreign Office. Right. And her boss at the Foreign Office, she said everyone always told her that she did a job in the war that was really important, but she wasn't allowed to talk about it. And my mum assumed she was a spy because she spoke lots of different languages, right. this woman. Many years later, I take my nephew to Bletchley Park. and um, My mum said... Can you have a look? If you can go through the records of who worked there, can you have a look and see if you can find my old boss? Because I think now, that's with hindsight, that's what she was doing. And she was. And she, she was, was in Hut 8. So brilliant. And she'd been working there. She was in Hut 8? She was in Hut <gasps> 8. But the difficulty is, or what I find interesting about this, is this is a period of these women's lives that they weren't allowed to talk no. about. No. She was awarded an OBE, if, I'm, if I recall correctly, um, but wasn't allowed to tell anybody why. <laughs> it's insane, mm, isn't it? Just like mm. my skirt. Particularly for women mm. yeah. who, you know, to prove yourself in the workplace. Yes. I mean, and you can't even put that on, the, no, on your CV, no. that what you've been doing. And I think in the case of Joan Clark, she stayed in the world of cryptography her whole career. So she remained at GCHQ after um, after the war. So that was her field. So I guess then even more reason for her not to be letting on that that's yeah. what she did for a living. Um, and of course she did all of that alongside I mean Turing um, was very open about the fact that Clark was the the most able at using the, the piece of kit that he devised to the most it was all mind bogglingly difficult but, but apparently German naval enigma was the most difficult of all the different variations of and, and that's what Joan Clark was working on in Hut 8 and um, Turing devised a piece of kit and I think it was pronounced the Banbarismus and she was by far and away the most able cryptographer using the Banbarismus to, to, to decode naval enigma um, and she couldn't be classified her job could she wasn't enabled to be paid the same as the men because at Bletchley Park if you were a woman you were either a secretary or a translator yeah. and that, that was it and so her pay code just you know, the fact that she was not only doing the same job but doing it better than the vast majority of her male colleagues, yeah, arguably, um, she couldn't. Well, luckily, that's not relevant to. Do- oh, sorry. yeah. <laughs> what other women's stories in here do you really want to talk about? I have a bunch of favourites, really, and I, I was trying earlier on on the train up here to kind of think about um, connections between different women, and and and, and actually, there's a but the the women I love most um, are my favourites simply because. They are one woman phenomena, all of them. One of them, absolutely heartbreaking story, which was Dorothy Lawrence, um, who was, um, she had a terrible, terrible childhood anyway, orphaned at a young age, taken on as as a sort of award. Oh, I thought you were going to say as a war reporter, because that was was my favourite one in this. She wanted to become a war correspondent during the First World War. She was laughed at all along Fleet Street. Her childhood had been awful, so she'd been orphaned. She'd been taken on by um, a, a ward that was very high up in the Church of England and was brought up in Salisbury, left at the age of 15, and it wasn't until quite late on in the research that I came across um, a report about her many years later going to seek uh, medical intervention 
for various problems. And during that conversation, she finally admits that she'd been raped by somebody very senior in the Church of England as a 13-year-old child for two years. So she leaves at the age of 15. She leaves Salisbury. She comes back to London and she makes it as a journalist, as a 15-year-old, without a soul in the world that knows her. Um, And then war breaks out. And so she went along Fleet Street and she said, I want to go to the front. I want to report on this. And eventually the Times, they arranged for her to get a passport to get the ferry over to France. But there was no real belief in in this as being an idea. So she tries and tries. She gets to Paris. Everybody she speaks to, she tries for successive weeks. I think it was something six to eight weeks. She tries to get to the front. And everybody she talks to within the army thinks they, they just can't process. This is what's so hard with that, you know, looking back through time. Nobody can process the fact that actually she's a journalist. She wants to just report. They're all thinking, well, if you're wanting to go to the front and be amongst men, troops, you must be a prostitute. That's the only possible... Or a spy. That's the only way that... that... So she gets there. She realises that the only way she's going to be taken seriously or allowed to get anywhere near is to shave her hair, lose the corset lose the bloomers she 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 makes friends with two um troops british troops who slowly but surely one one piece of kit at a time nick her a full uniform mm-hmm. um and she turns up at the front and she spends so spends she 10 days disguised yeah, as a yeah, yeah 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 um and it's with um royal Oh, artillery, I want to say. She was a tunnelling, it was a tunnelling troop that were uh, digging tunnels beneath no man's Ooh, land. Oh, like Birdsong. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And the two men that had taken her into their confidence, she realises after 10 days she keeps fainting repeatedly over and over and she realises she's going to have to turn herself in because if she doesn't and she's uncovered, it's going to impact on the two men that, that, that helped her get there. And the They don't know how to punish, but they're pretty sure they've got to punish. And so they send her to a convent. And the nuns look after her and give her a guinea pig. That's an odd detail in the story. I don't quite know why. I'm sorry. It's a great story, but that is my favourite detail. That is. (laughs) So she persuades them to let her go back to London. She's met off the boat by Scotland Yard with her guinea guinea pig. pig. She did. And they interrogate her some more. And then after however many hours in the cell... At Scotland Yard, they still can't decide what crime she's committed. So they dump her on the embankment, but they dump her with a gag order so that she's not allowed to tell her story until the end of the war. And when the end of the war comes, 1919, by this point she's destitute because she'd given everything to get to the to get to the front and now she's not allowed to make money out of it by telling the story 1919 she finally writes her novel it's called Sapper Dorothy she's ridiculed and torn to shreds in the British press they absolutely they call her a freak is it still available can um, you, get a copy? you can see you can read it online you can see a copy online. Sapper Dorothy. Sapper Dorothy and she's torn to shreds and of course by then it's 1919 1920 by the time yeah. it comes out and it's, people don't want to look back at the, at the war and the trenches and the mud and the death. They want to roar, they want to party. So it has this little tiny flurry and then nothing happens. And she goes on for 10 more years trying desperately to make it as a journalist and doing it um, and increasingly suffering from what we now know as PTSD. So she's got terrible psychiatric symptoms now, which of course 
nobody understood then in, in, in the soldiers that were coming back, but least of all in a woman. Yeah, and I think we know where it ends when women in yeah. those days yeah. with psychiatric Did she end up going... Did she end up being Colney Hatch, 40 years. 40 years of her life in Colney Hatch Lunatic Fucking Asylum. Hell. Sorry. She tells the doctor about her symptoms. She tells the doctor about her the rape um, as a teenage girl. And he takes one look at her. And, and the thing is, it was stacked against you anyway as a woman. But as a woman with no family, as a woman with no good, solid, respectable connections, as a woman with no university education, nobody to vouch for her, she had one friend in the world, and that was the woman whose house she was sent to live in in Salisbury for two years. And at Colney Hatch, the medical records, she names this woman and she lists her name and address as her only friend and she sends for her to, to come visit her 39 years and the woman never went to see her and she died in a lunatic assignment when I got to the end of that story it broke my heart because it's a pretty heartbreaking you know, story but she did it she did it she got her story told she went to the war she reported on it nothing much happened at the time but my god it should now you know yeah. it's it's crying out for for what somebody to take that and write it into a, a script. Film. Yeah. Why hasn't yeah. Sally Wainwright written that already? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's crying out for it's it. Not, it's not bleak enough for Sally Wainwright. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's to be more bleak. Um, I am How a bit do we grim, get I am a bit dark. You know, I oh, do no, well, come to the right welcome. place. Yeah. <laughs> How do we get her a plaque? Can we make these happen? Her house, the one that she lived in, it's, it was, it's really difficult to find addresses. And, um, and in the process of all of them, I would find an address through the census or the telephone directories if it was the right era but then you have to find out whether that address is still so then it's a google map google images or going to see it and trying to find out and establish whether those houses still exist and if they don't i tried really hard to keep going because london in the 19th century in the 18th century was just as migrant everybody was moving all the time as it is now so people did move addresses quite a lot i tried really hard in every case to find a house that that's still standing dorothy lawrence her house has been raised and it's it's some fancy um 1960s housing you have to be a bit detective then yeah that's history, that's a historian. That's what, oh, oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, other simplistic questions coming from this <laughs> corner of the <laughs> studio at any point. But now. that's what that's what draws that what me drew in. you into it. Definitely, Thank you. <laughs> it is. It's what it's what I love about about the processes of uncovering things and making connections and realizing, you know, there's two women in the book who are both absolute powerhouses, nineteenth century feminists. Like one's Hilda Martindale, the other's Helena Normanton, and researching their stories I kept thinking their lives are so parallel there's so much they've got in common then I, I get to the point where I'm looking at the census returns to find their neighbours their wow. actual neighbours wow. and I realised those parallels are real because they work together and they were both raised by single mothers one was widowed one was single from the start in Brighton and both of their mothers are powerhouses and feminists and leading members of their local community in Brighton. And so, you know, it's no surprise and it's no it's no um, accident that those women grow up to be game changers for in, in terms of um, one within the civil service and the other is the first... Helen Ormerton was the first woman at the bar. She was the first barrister in Britain. But they were also both coming from single parent backgrounds both absolutely dedicated to the idea that a a woman should work no matter what her marital status that a woman should is and that of course was that in itself was a completely alien concept 
and that secondly, once they were married, that they should be enabled to carry on. Because one thing I learned from doing this was that in the civil service, in teaching, in various other professions, once a woman married, she lost her job. That's pretty much still the case in the civil service. But <laughs> yeah. it's, it, they say well, it's a former civil servant. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's um, very much, my, my mother was in the civil service when she um, left school and this was in the 60s and she was saying that at that point it was no longer legal to sack a woman because she'd uh, she'd got married but you stopped women getting promoted on, though they, you stopped getting promoted and in her case they were women were all on temporary contracts and the temporary contract was was brought to a, an abrupt end as soon as they got married and that's the 60s that's 20 years after the law changed <laughs> There is a campaign at the moment um, about getting some blue plaques for women in sport. Mm-hmm. Do women do sport, Jen? They do, mate. Yeah, it's true. Um, <laughs> so it's, talk about not very many of them, but, you know, a couple. Why aren't there any sports women in your book? In my book. Partly it is about the the business of having to be uh, having to be dead for 20 years but but that doesn't quite I have to be honest that doesn't quite cover it because you know the women in the Olympics I believe came at the end of the 19th century so that it, I think I indulged myself really when I with this book and and filled it with women whose stories I couldn't not write about um, and it just so indulgent it's your book yeah it's how it to. works yeah but I yeah. felt like it was an indulgence I did I was saying earlier on to the publisher in Little Brown that this is the only book honestly hands on heart that I've written and I was sad when I sent it off usually it's like euphoric because thank god for that is over but this one I was really sad I guess it's just that these stories attracted me more Fair enough. I'll just give you a nod in case you ever do another one. Beryl Burton. Don't know when she died, to be honest, but Cyclist. she. Yeah, and she held the record for something or other. I can't remember what off the top of my head. Great facts, Jen. Um, yeah. uh, she held the record like of men and women for yeah, a really, really, really long time. I have yeah. to say, in my defence, I will ne- make a note of that, but in my defence, a lot of the women here are really hard to, to document. On the blue plaque, mm. it would be very hard to put a, sh- a brief phrase of, of why they were significant yeah. because some of them... I don't do brief anyway, really, but it, but some of them did excel across so many different fields um, and women multitaskers like, yes yeah. absolutely yeah. so Sorry, particularly women born into privilege who had the money to travel and the money to indulge all sorts of things mm. Gertrude Bell um, was a phenomenal mountaineer scaled you know made records all sorts of records in mountaineering so yeah I've got somebody that's physically excelling as well as also in in Alison's defense women didn't get knees until the 1800s that's true as well or feet as previously discussed <laughs> feet or knees Tricky for Which football. made sports tricky. Yeah. There yeah. are plenty of women in the book who... Um, Didn't have knees or feet. <laughs> who, who rebelled against exactly that. In fact, one of my other top favourites is the first in the book, and that's Mary Frith. Eight. I like in that. There's a bit where you write in that, Mary was having none of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it. It was Elizabethan England, and in Elizabethan England, you could only wear certain colours if you were born into certain classes, and women in Elizabethan England were essentially at home at home and women weren't allowed to that's so annoying when there was a bird on the throne I, yeah exactly what yeah, but not a feminist no she no, wasn't not a feminist I'm intrigued like by this what colours couldn't you wear you, could, oh, you put me on the spot now I've got to feeling red was not was out of bounds to working class women fuckers I know 
purple was quite regal as well. Yeah, well, it? I wondered yeah. if it was purple because, yeah. yeah, purple and gold. Oh, my God, all regal. my ermine cloaks would have been had to be left <laughs> at home. No ermine for me. There was someone else I wanted to mention mm. who was a poet. Phyllis Wheatley, the, the women of colour in that feature in the book, they all have in common the most remarkable resilience and courage. And there's an awful lot of courageous women in this book, Dorothy Lawrence, we've already talked about. But the women of colour, their stories really strike me because they're having to... It, it's that sense of the intensity of loneliness of their worlds. You know, the women... There's three women who feature in the book who were slaves. One is Phyllis Wheatley, Mary Prince is another, and a, a woman called Sarah Forbes Bonetta. They come to London from the colonies and they arrive in very different circumstances but in all cases it's that enormous sense of isolation this Mary Prince um, and Phyllis Wheatley are both enslaved Phyllis Wheatley is a child when she's taken from her home and by the time she arrived in the colonies in North America, she was so sickly that she was sold off at a bargain price. Um, and she was sold at the port of Boston, of New York and Boston, rather than being sold into a plantation because the ship owner was convinced she, she wasn't going to make, make any journey. money. Oh. And yeah, she wasn't going to be sold. And by the time they arrived in, in America, he was convinced he was going to have to dispose of a body because she was so close to death. So she's picked up by a family as a, a slave for their household in Boston. And there's twins in the household, 18-year-old son and daughter, who indulge her as a bit of a, a project. And they teach her and they discover in the course of this this education that she has fierce intellect and she writes poetry i think i studied her at university ah you might well have done mm. she was the first black american to woman published, to be published yeah. and she was published here because the family tried really really hard to get her published and it's an odd one this because they were trying to get her published while still owning her as a slave so she was not a free woman they weren't celebrating the remarkable intellect of this Our woman. slave is better than your slave. Yes. Yeah. It was a little bit of a curiosity. And so to try and get her published in in Boston, her owner gathered Boston's finest minds and they grilled her. They stood her. I think at the time she was 18, 19 years of age. They stood her in a room in front of all of these men and they grilled her and they tested her and they tried to catch her out, convinced that she hadn't actually written the poems herself. And in the end, they, dis they, they declared it genuine and this was remarkable and, and this flew in the face of what they knew to be a fact, which was that people of colour were ineducable. Um, and she proved ah, that. She the proved fact this of wrong. racism. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. So they couldn't get her published. Nobody would publish her. So they brought her to London, where the slave trade had already been outlawed. And when she arrived on British soil, she was already a celebrity because her public poems had been published ahead of time. And she was entertained by the likes of George Washington, who was in London at the time, and leading members of the aristocracy. And in the course of that, what's brought to her attention is that the, there's a loophole in the law. Now that she, as an enslaved woman, is on British soil, she can she can no longer be compelled to return to the States. Not, she can't be compelled to go back to America. So she is essentially a free woman, but she's only free for the duration of the time in London. So she gets on a boat home 
But as soon as she gets home, she's clearly negotiated in the background because as soon as she gets home, she gets her manumission. She's she's freed, which is great. She's now a published poet. She's got a book published and she's a free woman. And so then you think this is a jubilant story. And then her life gets really hard because as a free woman in America in in this period, really early period of the 19th century, her future's really, really grim. And she dies poverty-stricken and she loses two children and she dies soon afterwards um, and it's grim and, and there's there's you know Sarah Forbes Bonetta is enslaved within West Africa she's she's a princess and she's captured by a, a neighboring warring tribe um, watches her whole family get slaughtered I told you it was dark this book she's rescued by a, an emissary from the British government she's brought back to Queen Victoria who transforms her life who educates her who she makes her her goddaughter she's in all the royal court the columns of the newspapers she's a celebrity every time she goes to court she she plays victoria writes to her all the time calls her sally she plays with victoria's daughter and her every move is dictated by victoria so her life she was like that with her own kids wasn't she yes but her every move. And so when Victoria finds her a match for marriage, she says, Sarah says, uh, no, thank you. And Victoria says, fine, you don't want this. I'm gonna, you're going to up sticks, move from the home that you've been living in and live with these two miserable ancient women in Brighton that you'll hate, whose house is, as Sarah describes, some, a, a pigsty. And Victoria says, that's fine. That's fine. If you don't want to marry, you have to stay there. Or you could marry. And so within a year, Sarah marries. It turns out happily in the end. But she... Thank there God, is this, someone does. <laughs> she, but she, she burns the house down twice. And twice? Kind of, <laughs> twice on her, the night of her honeymoon. There's two fires break out in the honeymoon home in Bloomsbury. That sounds, that that sounds, sounds sexy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wasn't going to say that. Right, that sounds sorry. like a woman who thinks I could get out of this marriage yes. pretty quick. Yeah. yeah. She she wasn't happy at first. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but they stay together the and they, they end up, by all accounts, very happy. But no, there is an ongoing struggle. And the, the miserable thing about that, of course, is that by the time you come into the stories of of some really remarkable women of colour in the 20th century, the struggles are slightly different, but they're still there. They're still battling it. They're still, you know, there's a photograph of um, the first black woman broadcaster at the BBC standing in a queue at the canteen of the BBC and there's three white women in the background just sort of watching the spectacle and you realise, you know, how utterly isolating it must be in that period of history to be the only one mm. when you were talking about phyllis and sarah there's an aspect of them always being the curiosity which yes. is what you said and them see being seen as freakish for doing something that hadn't been yeah. done before yeah but it's it's that it but for other women of color if you can see it you can be it yes and it had to start somewhere yes exactly and that's it is that whole thing of role models and that was through the book um, in all sorts of different ways it was really uplifting and a little bit depressing at the age of 51 these these women I'm 51 and you read the stories of these women who achieved all sorts of things in all sorts of fields at enormous cost and in all against all odds and who fought and fought and fought and you know a woman who was the first British surgeon female surgeon who you know she did it and she qualified and she by the time she died the obituaries are all over full of praise 
And yet she battled, you know, misogyny throughout her whole career. Nasty, nasty stuff. And she just kind of blinkers on, get on with your job and do it to the best of your ability. Wow. I could sit here and listen I to really you could. I really could. I love these women all Well, day. I love a bit of history. Yes. Yeah. We know. Hannah's think, like a little pig in shit here. <laughs> yeah, I am. <laughs> I love Because I think what's interesting about a lot of women in history is even the women in history that, that sort of, that their name is known to you. Mm. People, you tend to think of them as like the one thing. Mm. I'm trying to think of an example. Oh, okay, I'm quite obsessed with Martha Cannery, who right. is Calamity Jane. Mm. That's what she's yeah, known yeah. as. Her backstory is amazing. Is it? But what That's people what know. know about her, similarly with Molly Brown, who is known as Unsinkable Molly mm. Brown, mm. went on to campaign for all sorts of women's rights. Mother Jones, who mm. was the woman that the magazine Mother Jones is named after, mm. she had a really crazy, quite a dull settled life then her entire family died of yellow fever all her children her husband her shop burned down and she lost absolutely everything and and that was about the age of about 50 and she went on to be one of the biggest union leaders in america but people don't tend to they're like oh mother jones she led the unions they don't tend to look at who she was before that and what she'd endured and And there is that real sense of you know on a similar note there's that real sense in the book of of the crossover of these women who you read their story in isolation and then in the course of researching it you realize my god these women were networking these all Mm. of these remarkable people were working together all at the same time yeah um it's it you know and that's that's really striking really really striking i bet the majority of them were raising families as well do you know what emerged from the book was that the majority of them are single. Oh. The majority of them are yeah. single. Come on, I'll single come women. <laughs> They're single or gay or both because of the marriage bar. And the, the ones that aren't, the remarkable women who achieve from within marriage are noteworthy because they rail against that. They're raging against that. Women like Caroline Norton there's a film in her life as well who who was woman of privilege very high profile marriage she came she was from the Sheridan family as in the Irish literary they were also um, politicians um, she married a man who from her honeymoon beat her horrifically and she stuck it out until she lost her fourth she miscarried her fourth pregnancy because he um, battered her so severely is this a woman that basically got the divorce laws changed yeah. yes yeah Sheridan family as in the rivals. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So she she fought against that. She sacrificed her reputation in society entirely so that she could... Uh, she, basically, when, when they separated, because a woman could not own any property within marriage, that extended also to her children. The moment they were born, they were they her husband's husband. property. Yeah. And she, she raged against that and realised she was never going to win with him her ex so she went for the law instead she battered the law there's so much it's it's not as much now but there was so much stock in reputation yes. that to fight it to go against it yeah. was massive yeah absolutely i don't know if you watched the the dramatization of queen victoria of the the, the, mm. the television series um, i got i I've got feelings about Queen Victoria. She makes me quite angry. Yeah, she was a conflicted woman, I think, wasn't yeah. she, in many ways? She, it, it makes a big deal of her um, her flirtation with Lord Melbourne when he was Lord M, she calls him, and, and she had a big bit of a thing for him, and he was Prime Minister at one point. And they allude to a bit of a scandal going on in Lord M's life. The scandal was Caroline Norton, and when Norton left 
her husband, he brought a criminal conversation, as it was called. He basically sued Lord Melbourne, the Prime Minister, for having an adulterous affair with his wife in his own parlour. And by way of evidence, he got two ex-servants from their household and got them to testify to all manner of stuff. And just to make absolutely sure that the whole nation read it, he took out huge full-page adverts in the newspapers which detailed all of this. Well, it was his property. It was his property. Someone was fiddling with his property. Um, he lost. and yes. um, He lost. <laughs> and, uh, he lost. But she did, in the process, she lost... Everything, her children, her home, her reputation, most of her friends, Lord M, who there was definitely huge uh, affection between them, although, you know, the jury's kind of out on whether there was a relationship between them. He cut himself off from her in order to save his career. And so she uh, moved in with an uncle and took a deep breath and then took the law on. And as a result, she three separate pieces of legislation all directly quote from Caroline Norton's own writings. Um, so she was able to get established in law a woman's right to maintain custody of children under a certain age in the in the case of divorce, um, and and also to push for the Married Women's Property Act. If any wow. if anyone's looking for stories to read their kids at night time, yeah. this is the best bedtime book ever. I think and I, I could just sit and listen. Like tell me more. Stories. I would also say that bearing in mind, I mean, a lot of these women were mm. potentially childless because, yeah. like you say, of the situation that they were in. But by virtue of the fact that they are just ordinary women, mm. this is why people should poke around in their own family history yes. because that's oh, where God, you yes. find really interesting women yeah. whose stories are untold. One of them actually is a descendant of a lady that comes into the post office in the village I live in in Somerset. Oh, really? And she said, oh, you need to look up Lady Evelyn uh, Cobalt. And it was a lady who uh, she became late in life. She became a leading expert on King Zog and the mountain peoples of Albania. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> she I'll just leave that there. Sci-fi. Yes. <laughs> so um, yeah, and so so it is. You never know who was lurking in your absolutely in, 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 in your background. Yeah. Thank you so much that for coming on, Alison. This is fascinating. Thank you Pleasure. so much. So yeah. the book is called A Woman Lived Here: uh, Alternative Blue Plaques, and it is available from all places that sell books. Yes, it is. Hopefully, if it's not, bang on their door and ask why. <laughs> Thanks yeah, very much okay. for listening. Hope <laughs> oh, you enjoyed that. How yeah. <laughs> interesting was that? Seriously. I could have just listened to her all day. As I believe I said about four times, uh, she still refused to come home with me and keep talking. There you go. This isn't the first chops, as you know. We've done loads of them chatting to women from the worlds of sport, activism, comedy. You name it, we've had a chops with them. And we're going to keep going, but please do go and have a listen to our back catalogue. Until the next time. Stay frosty.